Well, saints, any time that the enemy is trying to kill us, our wives, and our children, it's going to be a great meeting. We just saw all airbags go off at the corner of Westheimer and Six, and a demoniac flee the scene. And that is a sign that it is going to be a great meeting. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. I just have to remark. You look remarkably well-rested. You look content and well-fed. It would not be right as an army of righteousness to promote this kind of comfort and laxity. So we fully intend to afflict you with the word of God tonight. We're going to begin with a conditioning sprint through the word of God. We're going to be getting back into a feverish pace. With determined abandonment of all caution, we're going to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Tonight, we'll be covering five. Five fat, five full, five healthy chapters. And you're going to be all the better for it. At this point in Jeremiah... You're already familiar with the major themes. You're familiar with the divine doctrine. You're beginning to grasp the scope of the spiritual artistry being portrayed. Since you're starting to uh, get the bigger picture, we're just going to enjoy the repeated vivid colors that are being used by Jeremiah. Our hope is that this series will reinforce That which the Lord is clearly saying to us as a church body. For he's seen fit to announce it with repetition in our midst for months now. And the book of Jeremiah does the same over decades. Instead of reading through all five chapters at the onset of this evening, given the car crashes and the mishaps that have happened, we're going to pray. And then we're going to pick up in verse 1 together. This will allow you to experience these chapters as a kind of guided tour with expansion and expounding occurring as you begin to exercise your spiritual physique. And we're going to do it together. Amen? Amen. So which man of God is going to pray for us as we begin to teach? Oh, Timothy Carter! traveled to the other side of the world with less effort than it took to get here tonight. (laughs) The look of determination you see on our faces should not be mistaken for a harshness. 
We're going to forego Miss Jennifer butchering the names of these no. Hebrew men and all of heaven laughing with us. And instead, we're going to turn our attention to Port Arthur's very own Justin Linton, where we are sure that we will get the proper Hebrew enunciation of these names. Pick up in verse 1, Brother Linton, and we're just going to go from there together. We're tonight going to read verse by verse and elaborate together from the get-go. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the interior guard, had released them at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile to Babylon. Wow. More controversy surrounds this verse than you might have guessed. We'd like to show you a slide to help you understand. What is Jeremiah doing in chains? Hasn't he already been released? Is this the retelling of a previous event? What is the word of the Lord? Is this a reference to Nebuzaradan's speech? Well, I can see by the look on your faces that these are the very concerns that have immediately risen in your hearts upon hearing the first verse. It gives us great joy to explore those answers with you this evening. That process is going to begin by reviewing chapter 39. So... Andrew Tisdale, read for us Jeremiah 39, 11 through 14. Jeremiah 39, 11 through 14. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. Oh my God, we got it, man. Yeah, Babylonian scholar. Nergal Sherazar. It's clear Tizzy spent a lot of time in Babylon. Yeah. That's a Chaldean beard. A high official and all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, yeah. to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. Alright, so in chapter 39, you see that Jeremiah was clearly freed by Nebuchadnezzar's order. That was last time we studied together. That much is in the Peshat. The physical agents who were there, are even identified by name. We have a slide to show you these guys. So Jeremiah was freed, and it was witnessed by a guy named Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, a chief officer, Nergal Sherezer, a high official, and then it says all the other officers who were there. Now, notice in verse 14, it says, had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard, they turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. Did you catch that's in the past sense already? So when we left chapter 39 weeks ago, ages ago, (laughs) Jeremiah had been released from the courtyard of the guard. And they, meaning those men we just saw, they turned him over to Gedaliah. 
In tonight's opening verse, Jeremiah is found bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile to Babylon. So somehow Jeremiah is back in captivity. This is not the location of his original release. That was the courtyard. And the Babylonians speaking to Jeremiah in the coming verses are not identical. It's a different set of guys. So this is clearly a separate event and not a retelling of an, of an original event. Man, that helps, right? You can thank us for that. That didn't take very long for us to figure out. Yeah, this not is, at all. This is going to get more and more clear as Lynn Tone continues in 40 verses 2 through 5. We're going to build on this, and it's going to get clear for you. When the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, The Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place, and now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord. What do you mean? You people. You people. You people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. But today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrist. Come with me to Babylon, if you like, and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to get a life. Oh, what did he say? Go back. Go, go back. Back to Gedalia, right? Son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, yeah. whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with them among the people, or go anywhere else you please. If the words go back, Gedalia are in the text, then this clearly means that it's the second time that Jeremiah has been freed from Nebuzaradan, and it's not a retelling of the original event. This intriguing detail hints at other elements of what some see as controversial. You guys excited to get into that a little bit with us? Yeah. So in verse 1, we have the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah, right? You guys remember that? Some see this as Nebuzaradan reminding Jeremiah of his own prophecies. But we have a different kind of view for you tonight. In our view as we're reading the text, that could be possible, but it's not exactly what's happening here. Nebuzaradan does not proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Instead, he only repeats things Jeremiah had previously alluded to. In all likelihood, Nebuzaradan is just repeating what had become Babylonian talking points. Like Babylon what you hear on CNN. Yeah, just repeating Babylonian propaganda, maybe. <laughs> Political speech. You people. Like, you know, all of the uh, left-wing news stations repeating the same things at the same time. We won't leave any behind! <laughs> you heard that time and time and time again this last week. He never indicates, Nebuzaradan we're speaking of, never indicates any relationship or obedience to the Lord. He's a Babylonian. He's just an official concerned with carrying out Nebuchadnezzar's word so that he himself would not be punished, right? Additionally, there is no record, no recorded word from the Lord until all the way in Jeremiah 42, verse 7. We're talking about nearly two and a half chapters after it says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So we have a suggestion for you, and Peyton's going to help us out with that. So we'd like to suggest that the phrase, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, 
after Nebuzaradan, commander of the Imperial Guard, had released him at Ramah, that it refers to Jeremiah being instructed by God to give up his own freedom and join in the chains of the people. Wow. Oh, so there's a word, and it's not explicitly stated in quotes in our chapter, but we have what Jeremiah actually did after that, which is remain in chains with the people of God instead of fleeing somewhere else. Yeah, so in other words, Jeremiah is prophetically acting out the word of the Lord like Agabus with Paul. Do you guys want to look at that? Yeah. yeah. This is Acts 21, verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. In our minds, this is, simil this is a similar situation occurring with Jeremiah. He knows that everything that has happened came from the word of the Lord, and how he is now acting out a prophetic word by sharing in the faith of his own people. Do you see that? Yeah. He's actually playing out the word of the Lord. Now, if your temptation is to view this connection as spurious, you should know that Christians universally love Josephus. It's true. Now, he was a Jew who suffered defeat by the Romans and then joined the occupying force and wrote a history of the Jews while working with and living with the Romans. If you need a deep commentary on that, Judah loves Josephus. <laughs> Incidentally, Jews do not like or receive Josephus. They view him like Benedict Arnold. Traitor! Like a traitor. Now, however, Jeremiah is seen by the Jewish people throughout history as a noble example of a Jewish prophet who told the truth and suffered with his people for Amen. it. Perhaps there's a profound lesson in this for Christendom, for us. Our highest ideal should be to be to both tell the truth and suffer alongside good God's people for their strengthening, their encouragement, and their correction. Amen. Let that settle in your souls for a moment, and perhaps you will never look at a so-called rapture teaching the same way, that you get taken away from all the struggles, troubles and you get to escape it. Now, during the time of Jacob's trouble, surely the church can be an actual witness instead of escaping coward. Amen. Saints, I want to assure you that this mentality is not spurious, but is something that we must be focusing in on these days. Amen. By choice, Jeremiah chose to identify with his people. Yeah. Philippians 1.27 says, Whatever happens, mm. conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. <laughs> then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, Amen. and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him or on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw same. I had, and now hear that I still have. Wow. Saints, we want to tell you this evening that there is power in suffering the same suffering as our Jewish brother. Come on. Yeah. And it may be the greatest witness that we can possibly offer to them. Yeah. It's worth noting that the Bible frequently contains verses like this, Daniel 11:31 being one of them. 
All right, I'm going to read this to you, and I just want to tell you this whole idea about Jeremiah acting this out. Well, I'll make you a little bet. If you can find it in a commentary, then I owe you $100. But if you can't, then all of you owe us $100. Yeah. Anybody want to take that bet? Well, we're going to be poor again this week, Judah. <laughs> Daniel 11.31 might be instructive for us. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, meaning they're in one, but have violated it. But the people who know their God, come on now, the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Maybe the greatest witness to a deceived, unbelieving generation of Jews who are called are those who stand with them in the same circumstances because they actually know their God and firmly resist the Antichrist. Certainly, Jeremiah was an incredible witness. And it's not because he escaped the difficulty It's because he shared in the same struggle with them. If that's not enough for you, I'm going to steal just one more. (laughs) This little known chapter in your Bible called Hebrews 11. In the 24th verse says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, my God, I hope we're all growing up in here. Refuse. Somebody say refuse. To be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Both Jeremiah and Moses could have been received as royalty by their foreign Slave masters. If Jeremiah wanted, he could have gone to Babylon in great pomp and pageantry. The prophets chose to be mistreated with the people of God. They even refused to be released that they might gain a better resurrection. Come on, church, say chose. chose. This isn't something that they had to do. This is something that they chose to do. That speaks a louder message than anything that you have to do. Now remember that these kinds of suffering prophetic actions are not uncommon among the prophets. Anybody aspire to be a prophet in this room? Wow, that was weak. Anybody aspire to be a prophet in this room? Well, we have a slide for you of compelling prophetic actions that the prophets lived out. Ezekiel laid on his left side for Samaria for 390 days. Man, I don't want to know what that does to your liver. And on his right side for 40 days for Judah to convey the paralyzing effects of their sin. He also shaved his head and he ate some kind of defiled food cooked over some kind of manure. That was all easy. No suffering in that. How about Hosea marrying a prostitute? No suffering involved there. You think your marriage is difficult. How about Isaiah walking about naked 
for three years to act out a prophetic message. They chose to suffer to advance the kingdom of God. It should also be noted that God often directed Jeremiah himself to act out things that were prophetic. Consider this next slide. Jeremiah wore and buried a nasty linen belt that he had to purchase. Jeremiah also purchases and shatters a clay jar in front of the elders of Judah. Jeremiah also had to wear a yoke on his neck. He also had to purchase a title deed. Man, it sounds like his finances belong to the Lord. Jeremiah buries large stones as an old man, as a place marker for a Babylonian throne in Egypt. And we're going to see that later tonight. In chapter 43, verses 9 through 10. Look, as we close out our thoughts on this subject, it seems to us that Nebuzaradan released Jeremiah into Gedaliah's custody because his boss demanded it. Mm-hmm. He was afraid of him. Later, he received word that Jeremiah was among the captives headed for Babylon. This presented a problem for Nebuzaradan yeah. because his boss's actions are not being carried out. It had the potential to appear as if he disregarded Nebuchadnezzar's command. So he went and found Jeremiah and, in effect, told him that he could go to Babylon. But not like this. Not like this. Nebuchadnezzar can't see this. And when Jeremiah could not be persuaded to receive honor in Babylon, then he was again remanded into the custody of Gedaliah. Man, that is a message for our time, choosing to be mistreated. Let's pick up to the last part of verse 5, and you're going to see this thought continue. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. When all the army officers and their men who were still in the open country heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, as governor over the land, and had put him in charge of the men, women, and children who were the poorest in the land, Mm. and who had not been carried into exile, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, and Jonathan, sons of Korea, Sarahiah, son of Tanamith, the sons of Ephah, the Netophathites, and Jazaniah, the son of Mahathites, and their men. Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay in Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us. But you are to harvest the wine, some of the the fruit oil, and oil, and put them in your storage jars and live in the towns you have taken over. Now, in these verses, that's a pretty big chunk that we just read here. But in in this chunk of passages here, there are some insightful things going on. We want to briefly look at a view, and we have a couple visual slides for you to grab a hold. We want to talk about Gedaliah for a moment. Now, this slide is entitled, Not the Royal Line. Speaking about Gedaliah, it says, In Lachish... The imprint of a seal was excavated, dating from the second half of the 7th century BCE. Now, 
How big is a seal? We're talking about something that is not that big at all. I mean, it's tiny, right? Yeah. In all the world, this particular seal was excavated. The date is anchored by the stratigraphy of the excavation. Paleographically, the script belongs to the Iron Age period. The inscription reads, Gedal Yahu Ish Al Habayit. Belonging to Gedal Yahu, who is over the house. A majority of scholars identify Gedal Yahu with uh, Gedalia, the assassinated governor. Some have their doubts, though. The stratigraphy of the find is consistent with an early 6th century BCE <coughs> governor. Look at this next slide of a visual of what this particular seal of uh, Gedaliah looks like. That's it? Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. wow. So they found this seal, and the date uh, triangulates exactly to this period of history that we're reading about in Jeremiah tonight. Wow. A couple takeaways from this. Uh, Gedaliah was not of the royal line of David. He's not of the royal line. He is the third generation from the man that discovered the book of the law. Yeah. Shaphan! You guys remember Shaphan? You remember yeah. three generations? Yeah. The seal that was found in Lachish attests to the authenticity of the biblical account. The seal does not say belonging to the king, but instead says belonging to Gedaliah, who is over the house. Bet. Gedaliah is a faithful man that is present with Israel in the absence of a son of David because he's not part of the royal line. This ought to remind you of Messianic Jewish leaders who are not Jesus, but who do represent his leadership in turbulent times that are ahead in Jerusalem's future. Lastly, notice that his great concern is for the harvest and bringing it into the storehouses. Isn't that amazing? No shadows and types here. Yeah, they're riddled throughout these five chapters tonight. We pray that God will give you insight into this beautiful picture of events that is going to happen in our near future. Come on. We're going to pick up in 11 and 12. When all the Jews in Moab, Ammon, Edom, and all the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a rivet in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, they all came back to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah and Mishpah, from all the countries where they had been scattered. And they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. Now, there is so much to cover this evening that we are not going to draw parallels to these events and the repatriation of Israel in 1948. Although it's there. But it's there. <laughs> Suffice it to say that no son of David has been ruling the Knesset in the last 73 years, and yet Jews are returning from the nations because of the prosperity <laughs> under the guidance of the men over the house. Amen. Now, unfortunately, like good. Gedaliah, these men are often naive. Yeah. They, they get assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> they lack insight into God's plan. All of this puts the nation of Israel on a collision course with the path of Messiah. Suffering as he suffered and in need of resurrection as Messiah was resurrected. Come on. Did you guys see that? Yeah. yeah. Let's move on to verse 13. Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers still in the open country came to get alive in Mishpah and said to them, Don't you know that Balaam, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Bethaniah, to take your life? Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Then Johanan, son of Korea, said privately to Gedaliah and Mishpah, Let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Bethaniah. 
life and no one will know it. <laughs> Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish? Mm. But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, son of Korah, don't do such a thing. What are you saying? What you are saying about Ishmael is not true. Mm. Man, another evening we can discuss the clarity that King David possessed and how he restrained Abishai from killing Saul. In fact, he was very close to doing it, and he restrained it. Now, this was not because David was naive, but rather because he trusted the Lord and chose to be in that weak situation. Now, in Gedaliah's case, he's simply naive, wrong, undiscerning. And the problem is going to turn out to be terminal in his case. (laughs) It will result in death. Sometimes stupidity kills you. It also is slightly ironic that Ishmael is of Jewish descent, but is not a Jew inwardly in the sense. In fact, he is named for a man of exactly the same nature, a relative of the faithful, a relative but not a praiseworthy relative. And man, will he display the character of his namesake. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and get into 41, brother. In the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nebaniah, the son of Elishama, who was a boy of blood and had been one of the king's officers, came with ten men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at noon. While they were eating together, Ishmael, son of Nebaniah, and the ten men who were with him got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Ishmael also killed all the Jews who were with Gedaliah at as well as the Babylonian soldiers who were there. Can you all see how that's a problematic event? It's hard to not look too deeply into the shadows and types in this passage. But we want to stick a little more closely to the historical narrative this evening. Let me just make brief comment that the frequent use of the term ten men in this passage, well, it reminds us. It reminds us of 1 Timothy 1.8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Ten commandments are good if you use them properly. Of course, if you use them to murder those that God has appointed, not so good. Men attempting to assume leadership of God's community frequently misuse the law, in effect trying to murder those who are causing God's people to rebound, to revive, to return, to flourish. And that seems to be being hinted at here. I'd like to talk to you about the historical note for just a minute, though. This is kind of a major problem. Ishmael has killed the man that Nebuchadnezzar put in charge. And if that wasn't enough, Ishmael killed Babylonian soldiers, too. Like, I don't know, most nations will not let their citizens be murdered by another nation. At least not most times in history. Most of the time they don't turn blind eyes to those kind of events. So this causes a great deal of fear and anxiety among the Jews that are left in Israel. Because a very bad thing has been done. They have a little longer news cycle than we do. And the, the leaders didn't believe that this would go away in a week. Or if a hurricane swept in, everybody would forget about it. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 4. The day after Gedaliah's assassination, 
In these verses, it's also noteworthy to understand. The house of the Lord is no longer standing. So where are these men going? It says they're going to the house of the Lord. These 80 men are going to the temple mount where it used to stand. And this is all recent. Additionally, they have <clears throat> cut themselves. That's not good. Which is forbidden in Leviticus 19.28. Not allowed to do that. They may be well-intentioned, but they are entirely wrong. When your own religious practice is well-intentioned in your eyes, but far from the actual practice of the written word, you are easily deceived. And what does that situation cause? You to be easily deceived. And that's exactly what happens here. Ishmael lies and they listen to him. He's a murderer and they're about to follow him to wherever he's leading them. Look how that plays out in verse 7. We're going to read to verse 9. When they went into the city, Ishmael, son of Adoniah, and the men who were with them slaughtered them and threw them into a system. Mm. But ten of them said to Ishmael, Don't kill us. We have wheat and barley, honey and oil hidden in the field. So he let them alone and did not kill them with all the others. Now the system where he threw all the bodies of the men he had killed along with Gedaliah was one King Asa had made as a part of his defense against Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, filled it with the dead. Wow. These four misdirected Samaritans, man. Mm. They were polluted. Polluted by cultural misapplication. Mm. Guess where they ended up? Seventy of them ended up dead in a cistern. The other ten were left alive but left alive to be tortured so that Ishmael could find out where the hidden food they spoke of was located. He kept them alive only to torture them and find out where their storehouses were. Ironically, we found that this whole event is related to Proverbs. Chapter 4, verse 23. It says this. Let me read it to you. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Church, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts against cultural corruption. The word is all that matters. The word will work to guard your hearts and keep them pure. Church, guard your hearts against selfish ambition. We are called to become lesser that others might be greater. Now when you get these wrong, you actually pollute the life-giving well of water that was meant to feed the souls of others all along. You may end up dead in your own cistern. Now, you have guys have not reacted to that quite like I thought you might. So we're going to stop on it for just a second. The Samaritans and those coming from Shiloh and the other surrounding areas were not pure in their practices. They were adding, cutting themselves for the dead, which the book of Leviticus Forbids. So they were well-intentioned, but they ended up in a dead cistern. Ishmael, well, in some sense, he seems to be fighting for the independence of Israel. (laughs) Except God has not called that, and his selfish ambition is polluting the wellsprings of life. When we culturally misapply the word of God to better fit your liking, 
well, this is just how we do it here. You're polluting the well that was intended to cause others to have life. When you want to do something great for God, but he has not called you to do what you want to do. You are polluting the wellspring of life. You can end up dead in a cistern like that. I hoped it would have some effect on you. Let's go to verse 10. Ishmael made captives of all the rest of the people who were in Mishra, the king's daughters, along with all the others who were left there, over whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out across to cross over to the Ammonites. When Johannes, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him heard about all the crimes Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had committed, they, they took all their men and went to fight Ishmael, son of Nethaniah. They caught up with him near the great pool in Gibeon. When all the people Ishmael had had with him saw Johannes, son of Korea, and, and the army officers who were with him, they were glad. All the people Ishmael had taken captive in Mishpah turned and went over to Johannes, son of Korea. But Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and eight of his men escaped from Johannes and fled to the Ammonites. Then Johannes, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him led away all the all the survivors from Mizpah, who he, whom he had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, after he had assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. The soldiers, women, children, and court officials he had brought from Gibeon. They went on, stopping at Guru Kimham, <laughs> near Bethlehem, on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Well, I know that's a lot, but we are tempted to feel drawn to Johannes because he's rescuing the captives from Ishmael, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. But he is also fleeing to Egypt, uh, yeah. which is contrary to all of Jeremiah's prophecies and the imperatives in the Tanakh, <coughs> and how a knowledge of the word can save your life. Mm-hmm. Let's look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, and listen to this. This is in the Torah. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt. There it is. Return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord hath told you, you are not to go back that way again. How a knowledge of of the word would have saved his life, but he chose to be motivated by his own ambition, motivated by his own intellect, and it's going to end poorly for him. Do you see how everybody concerned in this is taking up what could be seen as a noble pursuit, but which clearly violates the word of God? We should all reflect on that some. Let's pick up in chapter 42. Then all the army officers, including Johannes, son of Korea, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we are though we were once many, now only left only a few are left. Mm. At this point in the historical narrative, they are already heading the way that they want to go. They're heading in the direction of Egypt. Every Please hear from from God. Where should we go? <laughs> but you're already headed where you want to go. Oh yeah. no. Every time 
They intentionally break God's commandments. There's a winnowing that takes place. Yeah. A winnowing of the remnant of survivors that we currently have. Right. Wow. They've already been winnowed. Man. But there's another winnowing coming. This is a strong indicator of the things to come in this chapter. <laughs> On a more local note, mm. an us note, very <laughs> often, when you ask for advice from one of the leaders in this church, your own actions have already indicated what your heart truly desires. Oh, come on, somebody. Yes. Tell him the truth. He's preaching to you, isn't he? Yes. It's time that we're warned of this kind of behavior. This only winnows the remnant. Somebody say the remnant. The remnant. As in us, the remnant in this room, down further. And we don't want that to happen to the dearly loved believers that are in this room. Be transparent, saints. Allow others to draw your attention to the motivation of your own heart. The false motives that you may not know that you have, but your actions indicate. So that those false motives, they no longer have power over you and you're able to avoid the judgment and winnowing of God. Come on. So think through this for a second. Have you heard recently, like maybe this Sunday, that all of a man's ways seem right to him? That all of your motives seem pure to you? What do they believe they're coming to Jeremiah to do? Seek God for direction. But how are their motives already revealed? They're already headed to Egypt. Pastor, should I stay in the church? Should I stay in the church as I'm walking towards the door? In these last few weeks, we... We saw a man get spirit-filled here. His, his whole life bloomed, and he didn't make it two weeks because he was no longer sure that God had called him here. Okay? Do you see how your own motives are displayed in your actions? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just seeking God. I'm just seeking God. No, you're not. You're looking for justification yeah. for what you already want to do. Yeah. Seeking God just makes you feel better about it. Yeah. Okay? Now... I'm not picking on whoever that was. They're not even here. We have to come to grips with this. There's a solution in our midst. What if your thoughts, what if your motives were not only being laid bare by the word of God, but the examination of your peers? You don't know why you think the things that you do, but God does. They were deceiving themselves. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, come here from God for us. What for, friends? You already charted your course to Egypt. You're already camped on the way to Egypt. What do you mean you want me to hear from God for you? Do you know how many times our pastoral counseling is exactly that? I I need to know, do you really believe that we're supposed to go to Alabama and set up a ministry? Do you really believe that? No, we told you before you went not to do it. We're telling you now we don't believe you're called to it. Nothing in your life shows that you would be able to do this. Do not go. Well, the thing is, is we already bought the property. So you weren't really asking, were you? That's that's a dime a dozen. It it, it happens every week. Do you know why? We don't know our own motives. And these chapters expose that. We're going to pick up in verse 3 and read for a while. Pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. I have heard you reply, Jeremiah. <laughs> I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you requested. 
I will tell you everything the Lord said and will keep nothing back from you. <laughs> then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God wow. said to you. Yeah. All right, now we're getting some reaction out of you. That struck y'all as awkward, didn't it? See, these kinds of reassurances, well, they feel good as they roll off the tongue. But they're usually prompted by a pattern of disobedience. Otherwise, why would you feel the need to even say it? Why do I need to say, Gabby, no, I'm really, really going to be there at 8. I promise you, as surely as the Lord lives, I'll be there at 8. Why would I have to say that to Gabby? Because I've never been there when I said I was going to. Okay? Let's examine our motives. Why do you feel the need to swear so strongly that something will never happen, that you will do something? Because nothing in your history has given you assurance that it's true. And so you think by laying claim to God's throne in heaven and on earth that somehow or another that makes it better. I want you to notice how this plays out in this chapter. And the next time that we read Matthew 5, the next time you pick up and say verse 37, with simply let your yes be yes and your no be no, Anything beyond this comes from the evil one? Well, you might consider that that's really good advice. And he was talking to a believing community because we've always had these tendencies. It's, it, there's not one man, not one woman in this room that is innocent in this regard. Oh, yeah. The extent to which you need to swear beyond your word shows that you know that you have never actually been keeping your word. Otherwise, your word would stand for itself, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. I think, by the way, that this might be the very event that Jesus is reflecting on in Matthew 5 when he's talking about it. It seems to me that he was pretty in touch with the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> Justin's going to pick up for us in verse 6. Are, are you guys enjoying this at all? Because yeah. we went through hell and back to be here for this, and we are throwing out soda bombs for you, and some of you have gnats and flies circulating around your open mouth. So shake yourself. You look like monkeys staring at a computer. Like, like prophesy to your dry bones and say, live! Yeah. Live. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord, our God, to whom we are sending you, so that it will go well with us. For we will obey the Lord, our God. Man, that sounds nice. Ten days later. Uh-oh. Uh-oh! A right use of the law. I just got to interrupt you for a minute. You got to love Jeremiah. You got to love this guy. Do you think that he knew when they're already camped on the way to Egypt and they bring him this petition? Like, do you think he had a little inkling that maybe this was not going to go well? He still took 10 days to seek God to make sure that it was right. I don't know about you, but I could definitely learn something from that. Some of you were guilty in my eyes when you walked in the room. <laughs> Sometimes we might need to look perfectly into the law that gives freedom for 10 full days and just make sure that we actually heard from God. Yeah. I will plant you and not uproot you. 
not fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord. For I am with you, and I will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. I want you to notice this small note here. That even in God's judgment, that the Lord is grieved over it. The Lord never wanted to do that to his people. The Lord never wants to bring judgment on his people. He longs to show compassion just like you long to show compassion to your children. But he cannot if his children remain disobedient. He won't allow it to continue further by showing compassion to that type of countenance. He will put an end to it. Come on, somebody. Say, he longs to show me compassion. He longs to show me compassion. Now wrestle with the truth that the only thing that keeps him from doing it is your own disobedience. Not the disobedience of the row in front of you or behind you. Yours. That's the only thing that keeps him from showing you compassion. He's daddy with presents in the trunk that wants to give them to you. But he just found out that you have been a little devil all day. And so he can't. And they're still there. And he still wants to give you good things. See, that's an important perspective. If you don't like the way your life is going, it's your fault. Repent. And then good things will come your way. Okay, that's, that's incredibly simple. And yet, it is a very big key to life. Yeah. Okay. All right, pick up in verse 13. However, if you say, we will not stay in this land, and so disobey the Lord your God. And if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread. (laughs) Then the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, said. If you are determined to go to Egypt, Uh and you do not Jeremiah is absolutely laying it out. Do you guys get a sense of where this decision might be headed? <laughs> like, yeah. it's a little bit foreboding, like, oh, this <laughs> probably isn't going to go well here. Sin was crouching at Cain's door. Yeah. You remember in Genesis? Yeah. Yeah. And he, he was commanded, you have to master this, Cain. He didn't. Cain didn't master that sin. And what did it do? It served to dominate his life. Yep. Yeah. It dominated his entire life. Do you see how he set before them life and yeah. death? Yeah. Yeah. The word always does that. Yeah. And it doesn't choose for you. You make the choice of what happens to you, whether life or death. And this is the believing community. Yeah. <laughs> how merciful is the Lord to lay it out there and say, hey, if you are obedient, even after everything that's happened, remnant, my remnant, if you obey me at this point, I will, I'm still willing to be merciful to you. I'm still willing to bless you. I'm still willing to allow you to prosper if only you would turn from your disobedience. You see, you and I, you and I in this room, we often act like we can be disobedient, not Deal with that disobedience, sweep it under the rug, move on to something different, and just think that it's going to turn out okay. Not possible. We have a passage from Numbers 32 
verse 23 for you. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord. And you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Mm. If you engage with Numbers 32, that is a terrifying passage to engage with. Knowing that your sin will find you out. Guys, the Lord is able to give you an opportunity to deal with your disobedience. But we are praying and begging with you tonight that you deal with the disobedience. You don't sweep it under the rug. You don't move on to another area, leaving it undone. Let us resolve tonight to obey the first time, guys. Yes. Let us resolve to recognize that obedience is life. It always leads to life. But disobedience is death, regardless of the present circumstances. Yeah. This is uh, clearly seen in churches of all kinds history. When a correction has failed to be heeded, and then they run four churches down the road, and they seem to prosper. I promise that is not prosperity. Right. You're going to hear that in these coming chapters. That's right. You can never simply leave one circumstance without obeying and go to a new set of circumstances and think that it will not hunt you down and choke you. It will every time. And the longer the amount of time that it takes for that to happen, the more disassociation there is for why it is happening. And that's a part of the deception. So let's just for argument's sake say, all of you are called to leave this church next week. Don't dare do it until you have gotten right what you were supposed to while you were here. That is the only acceptable reason to leave a ministry, is you have received all that there is to receive, and then you go and you go in a blessing. Friends, seeds that I sowed 15 years ago are still uh, springing out of the ground as weeds. You will never outrun what you have sown. And the good news is there were good seeds there too. And the Lord will help you cultivate. But you will never outrun. Charlie's been alive longer than I have. But I can tell you what we both know that you're learning is mistakes you make when your children are 5 to 10 years old do not go away when they're 15 to 20. Okay? You have to eat that harvest. You have to get it right. And simply moving to a new state, new church, new job, new wife, new car, it will not fix that. Okay? If your biggest problems in life were the last spouse you were married to, you're still missing the point. Okay? You have to come to grips with you. You have to. And you can never move on without doing it. It will hunt you down. Come on now. That's what we're, this is a remnant that keeps getting further and further whittled down because they do not go back to the pure word. They keep mixing it with what they think is right. Yeah. Do you hear the extraordinary prophetic warning in that for us? The Lord loves us. He's leading us down this path so that we can choose life. Come on. JL, can we get the audio for 17 and 18, please? Woo! All who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who live in Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out.
poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You will be an object of cursing and horror, of condemnation and reproach. You will never see this place again. Ooh. You ever read those passages that make you instantly sober? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if the Lord was willing to destroy us. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those. Yeah, it is. It's a pucker passage. I don't know what that means, but Matt will explain it after the service. This is a pucker passage. What a minute in the word. If the Lord was willing to destroy Jerusalem to deal with disobedience, how much more will he destroy Egypt to deal with the disobedience of his people? To expound on that, let me read 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Listen, there is no place above the earth, below the earth, or on the earth that we can go while being disobedient. There's no place that we can go that will shield us from the wrath of God. Listen to me, church. Our one refuge in repentance, our one refuge is repentance in Messiah. That's right. Dying to our desires and being resurrected anew in his. We can't have resurrection without repentance. That's why the Lord is highlighting it in our lives so that we can get it right now so we don't have to eat bad fruit of lack of repentance later on down the road. He is helping us. Moving on, let's go to verse 19. O remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this. I warn you today that you made a fatal mistake. (laughs) Can you imagine God saying that to you? You made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord, your God, and said, pray to the Lord our God for us. Tell us everything he says, and we will do it. I have told you today. But you still have not obeyed the Lord your God in all he sent me to tell you. So now, be sure of this. You will die by the sword, famine, and plague in the place where you want to go and tell. All right, guys. I, I want you to notice for a minute. That's well, a pretty strong language. A fatal mistake, the NIV said. You've gone and done it now! <laughs> Has there been a single response... From the man who originally petitioned him to pray yet. No. None whatsoever. Not a peep. Not a word. And yet he's saying you've done it now. You're going to die by the sword. Why might that be? I have a slide that I want to show you. And you may connect some dots between Sunday and tonight. That you have dealt deceitfully against your own lives. We're going to think through that for a minute. He can see by the lack of repentance and contrition in their eyes that they brought these events about because they had already dealt deceitfully against their own lives. Guys, when we do not deal with something that we want, you heard that in the last verse, 22, want to go settle the land where you want to go, when we feel fail to deal with the issues that we already want to do we're acting deceitfully against our own lives and our families hey lord show me what to do pastor pray with me man but you haven't dealt with the fact that you already desire something that is contrary to god 
You're deceiving yourself to your own death and that wow. of your children. Now sit, sit on that for a minute, yeah. saints. This is the most deceptive thing in Christianity. They already want to go to Egypt. Their whole course has been directed towards Egypt. They're camped on a path towards Egypt. Do they really want the truth? No. no. They're deceiving themselves. Yeah. And their question is proof of it. Yeah. Because if you're already halfway out the door and you're saying, Lord, I need to know whether or not you want to restore my home, let's be honest, the word has already said what he wants for your home. And you being halfway out the door shows that you do not want it and are deceiving yourself. On Sunday, you heard a strong admonition from us regarding your own motives appearing to be pure to you, to ourselves. They appear that way. Saints, it's time that we invite both the word of God and our peers into the issues of want in our own lives, the issues of our own desires and false motives. These things simultaneously deceive us and drive us further and further from the will of God. I'm going to read to you 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. You heard this referenced on Sunday. In every sort of evil that deceives those that are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them. God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that they will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Saints, in this house, we will not be deceived because we want and are asking for yes, teaching, rebuking, yeah. correction, yes. and training in righteousness. I need it. I need it. Hey, no, we will know that which means the death of our own desires, our own motives, and the acceptance of God's desires and wills Amen. in this house. Amen. Okay, so something's happened in LCM that's never happened before. Y'all want to hear about it? Yes. Somebody say 40. 40. I'm not talking about the 40 ounces that you can pick up at a grocery store. I'm talking about Jeremiah chapter 40. Now say 41. 41. Now 42. 42. We just covered three chapters in one hour. Wow. But wait, there's more. Let's pick up in Jeremiah 43, verse 1. When Jeremiah finished telling the people all the words of the Lord, their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah, son of Hoshiah, and Joanna, son of Korah, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are lying. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> are you serious? I sent you to say, you must not go to Egypt to settle that before. <laughs> yeah. Son of Neriah is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so they may kill us or carry us into exile. So dumb. <laughs> Some people are immune to good advice. Climbing in your windows, snatching your people up. Look, remember, it's not just Jeremiah saying this. No. It, it, it's not. The written word has already declared it since the days of Moses. You are not allowed to go back that way. Yeah. I mean, since Moses, 
The word has already got it written plainly. It shouldn't be in the realm of discussion. You ready for it? They do not accept the word of Jeremiah because they don't accept the written word. That settling for you for a minute? Yes. Well, next time you read Luke 16, 31, maybe this event will come to mind. Because we could have resurrection of the dead miracles in here, and it won't do a thing for you if you don't accept the things that we're saying that were already written in the word a thousand or two thousand or three thousand years before we said them, but you don't like it coming out of our mouths. Jeremiah is telling them the truth. He took 10 days to make sure that he was telling them the truth. And it was written in the word centuries before he went to seek God about it. But what do they receive it as? It's a lie. What is motivating their thoughts that they don't understand? It's different than what they already wanted to do. Welcome to the world of preaching. That's it right there. Okay. Now, a, a, a real fun question. Who, who, do they, who do they blame? What does verse 3 say? Baruch. Baruch's not talking to them right now. See, Jeremiah's working in a team. And uh, perhaps they're blaming his teammate because back in chapter 36, Jeremiah was in jail. And so Baruch had to bring the prophecies of Jeremiah to them. Bad news, Baruch. Yeah, he... Yeah, severe, bevere, and bad news, Baruch. And apparently, since in 36, 7, 8, and 9, we have Baruch addressing them through, Jer he's carrying Jeremiah's word, which is really the Lord's word, and they came to pass, they've decided Baruch wants to kill him. Okay? Baruch is just about our destruction. When the truth is, is Jeremiah and Baruch were in perfect unity the entire time and the direction was actually coming from the Lord. Amen. I can't tell you why I have such insight into this, but I'll give you a hint. There's three pastors in this church. And whichever one's not there that rebuked you last week is the one you think is motivating what we're saying right now. I guess I did tell you my insight into that passage, didn't I? Okay. People tend to develop a rather unhealthy dislike for those who represent the unchanging nature of God's standard. Because what they really are dealing with is that they themselves do not want to change. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But that's not going to be us in this house, is it? No, 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 no. In this house... We're going to examine our motives. We're going to invite yeah. others to do it. We're yeah. going to make sure that we are not living self-deceiving lives. Yeah, man. Because that's the reason God's bringing us these words. It's because he wants to show us compassion. He wants to help us. It's wartime. And we have to sharpen our senses. Amen to that? Amen. Okay, we're going to pick up in verse 4 because we have two full, fat, healthy, maybe fluffy, Chapters to go through. Well, we'll see. So Johanna, the son of Korea, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Instead, Johanna, the son of Korea, and all the army officers led away all the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been scattered. They also led away all the men, women, and children, and the king's daughters, whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had left with. 
Did y'all catch that under Gedaliah, people were streaming to Jerusalem from all of the diaspora-type areas? And then we have a false leader who happens to be named Ishmael. And ever since that moment, and those who were attempting to deal with it in the flesh, now we have people being scattered again. Y'all catch that? There's some serious end-time issues there, some second exodus implications, all kind of things. But we have a more simplistic point that we want to drive home to you. Yeah, did you guys notice that neither Baruch or Jeremiah were raptured because of their righteous stand? (laughs) But instead they endured tribulation with the people of God as a sign to them that God is able to save the righteous while holding the wicked in account for judgment? Now, I don't know about you, but it would strike me very difficult to be with this group who it said about they entered Egypt in disobedience. I might be asking myself, why am I here, Lord, if I know that what they're doing is wrong? Why am I following this guy named Johanan who seems to be from Korea? (laughs) When they're in disobedience. He's Kim Jong-il's spiritual advisor. And they don't want to have anything to do with what I'm telling them. Now, catch the beauty of this for a second, okay? Because we're rather proud of ourselves for the time. And uh, when God has said that they go into Babylonian captivity and the Babylonians want to free Jeremiah, he puts bronze shackles on himself. Signs, Signs of judgment of the people of God, and he's going with them. When they free him again... Jeremiah, who's made of spiritual steel, stands with them, prophesies, tells them the truth, and now he's going into captivity in Egypt. Yeah. At no point in his life does his obedience cause easier circumstances. No. Why would you think yours does? Okay? I I can tell you we spent the entire day in the Word of God. It has not produced an easier day. No. Nothing about it has been easier. Okay? We need to make an adjustment here. And you're going to hear this argument in the coming text. Yeah. And the lesson might just be that God has you in the situation that you're in, surrounded with the people that you're in, so that you can be a sign to them. Amen. Whether for judgment or salvation. Hey, let's pick up in verse 8. Yes, upon this, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. While the Jews are watching, take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the gate. That's old. To Pharaoh's palace. One of you young men, tell Charlie or, uh, or I, I don't know, Bosch or one of the guys in here with a few gray hairs, go get some really large stones and go bury him somewhere. You have to picture this in your mind. I mean, when you think Jeremiah's job can't get any worse, he has to show up outside the palace of, of Pharaoh and he has to dig up stones and then go bury them somewhere and he's the one doing it? I assure you, Pastor, these men have some of the largest stones that I've ever seen. Jeremiah's got the most precious stones that I can think of. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will send for my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity for those destined for those destined for the sword. 
tones, there are a plethora of odd... Did you say plethora? Plethora. A plethora of really odd conclusions and theories that are floating around there. Tonight, we're going to just avoid all of that foolishness, and we have a central point that we want to make about this passage. We don't have any uh, British citizens in here tonight that believe you're true Israel, do we? Good. We don't have to cover all of the stupidness of the Stone of Scone. Let's, let's just <laughs> keep going. The Stone of yeah. hey. Sounds like something you put in your coffee. <laughs> and it's worth about as much. Hey, hand me one of those, man. Instead, <laughs> we want to draw your attention to this point. Where this is happening, how did you pronounce that again, Lintone? Tapanes. Tapanes? I think that's phenomenal. Where that is, is actually about 20 miles from Goshen. Wow. 20 miles from Goshen. The very site of the original deliverance of the nation is now marked by disobedience, not 20 miles away. It's just like trampling on the original act of redemption through continued disobedience. That's what we're talking about here. The original act of obedience, the original act of deliverance, and the point where they are being disobedient for all the world to see is right in the same place. How many times have you seen this right here in this room? Where the original act of redemption and obedience in somebody's life, the freedom that they got in this place, they are trampling on as they walk out the door. For a parallel to this, you should be thinking about Hebrews 10:26 and that word trampling. One of the bigger issues, though, is that God will judge a nation like Egypt for oppressing his people and... 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 Somebody say and with me. And... He will also judge a nation like Egypt for giving sinful refuge to his people. Okay? So... They're oppressing, and they're going to get judged for it, and they're giving refuge, and they're going to get judged for it. Is Ibrahim in here tonight? No? Well, life's never easy for an Egyptian. That's the moral to that, <laughs> that story. In almost any scripture. We want you to catch the two sides of this sword. Egypt is judged for oppressing God's people during their initial deliverance. And now Egypt is going to be judged for being a worldly refuge for them outside of God's will. And they're both equal judgments. It seems like you could you know, pick one or the other maybe and say, oh, this is right or this is right. One of these is going to be right. No, none of them was right. Both, both of those position, positions were judged. That's why it's important that we understand that God's will is all that matters. You and your conceptions of right practices they're deeply and thoroughly flawed. How many times have you come to it's this or that and the correct answer was none of the two. Right. It was something yeah. completely different. Yeah. So can we put this into a LCM parable for you? Yes. Yes. Say, bro, all I did was open up my home. I, I don't know why you're upset with me. <laughs> all I did was just try to be kind to somebody who seemed like they needed help. Those all sound like such right practices. But what happens when you are giving refuge to somebody who is outside of God's will. Oh, I see that caught you. 
Okay, I, I, I was just giving Jonah a ride. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jonah was on my boat, but it wasn't like I was participating in something that was wrong. On a final note, just to connect these dots for you guys, verse 11 that we just read, it's actually quoted in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7 through 10, but it's quoted in the context of the believing community. And this believing community that will be in captivity to a mystery Babylon. I'm going to read that passage for you before we continue in verse 12. It says, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Wow. Does that, does that strike you? Like, as Jeremiah and Baruch going into Egypt? Like, oh, if we're obedient, then we're going to, you know, uh, have easy circumstances? Uh, this figure right here is given power to make war against the saints and conquer them. You see, this pattern in history is going to repeat itself in the last days. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, with the sword he will be killed. It applies to the believing community, and check out this last verse. This calls for patient endurance Amen. and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Yeah. Our endurance and our faithfulness needs to grow. It's got to grow because it will be required in greater measures as the days get yeah. shorter. Yeah. All right, are y'all engaging with us? Yes. Who is the beast making war against? Saints. Who needs patient endurance? Saints. Who does the beast conquer? Saints. That right there will fix a lot of your eschatology, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. sure will. Who is it that goes into captivity? Saints. Saints. Who is it that is killed by the sword? Saints. Saints. Okay, think through that for a minute. Can you, uh, sound booth, put Daniel 12.7 on the screen? You, you need to grab hold of this. You've been sold a lie for many years, and no matter how long we kick against it, it's, it's slow for you to get this revelation. The man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever. Does this sound important to y'all? Yeah. Yes. Saying, it will be for a time's time and a half time. When the power of the wayward backsliding, when the power of the Catholics, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, Whose power gets broken? No, it's not God's power that's broken. It's ours. When the power of the holy people has finally broken, all these things will be completed. We're on a collision course with the end of ourselves. We're on a collision course with the shattering of all self-reliance. Yes, of all self-direction, yeah. of all self-determination. You cannot have a resurrection of the dead without a death. Yeah. And the body of Christ, including the Jewish people, 
we'll go through this. Amen. We'll talk to you more about that as we come. What we're trying to do is practice for it right now. Amen. Yes. Let's pick back up in verse 12 and get into our historical narrative. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd wraps, wraps his garment around him, so he will wrap Egypt around himself and depart from there unscathed. There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. Demolish. The God of Israel who devastated Egypt to redeem his people, he will do the same thing when refining his people. Do you remember when Joshua asked, are you for our enemies? Yes. Are you for us? Yes. The answer is profound. He said, neither. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come to do his will, protect his people. Christian, you must understand that our God is able to destroy the oppressor. Listen, he is also able and will destroy those that aid others in avoiding the will of God. Wow. Do you catch the two lessons from Egypt? He defeats their gods in Exodus 12 when they're holding his people back. But he also defeats their gods in Jeremiah 43 when they're aiding a people and walking away from God. <clears throat> Tell me there's not a lesson in that for you. Wow. I don't know. The guy asked for five bucks and I gave it to him. It seemed like the right thing to do. Okay. You're aiding him in disobedience? Are you sure that it was prompted from the word and the spirit? And was there a second witness anywhere? Are you sure? These are serious matters. And our church is growing up in these things. Mm -hmm. Not everything that you think is good to do is actually good. Can you yeah. picture the poor Egyptians? Like, we really screwed this up four or five centuries ago, so look, our homes are open to you. <laughs> Except that was not God's will. Right? Yeah. Okay? Like a makeup call by a referee in a game. Yeah. You know, it, it's actually more heinous than the previous one. Do you catch those names? Migdal is where they were trapped between the sea and Pharaoh's army. Tamphanes is, is right next to Goshen. I mean, do, do you catch the similar language? We're right back at the foot of the cross, so to speak, except we're using it in all of the wrong ways. So in essence, the Lord is calling by name major cities in Egypt. He's calling out their capital, their areas of agriculture. And he's saying, the place where I live, where I dwell, where my sons were, I burned it to the earth over this kind of sinful behavior. 
what do you think I'm going to do with you who are not my son when I get there and you're harboring the Jews? Is that incredible? Yeah. And this is a little bit like a father that just laid into a son because of repetitive, disrespectful, sinful behavior. But a neighbor's kid's doing the same thing, if not worse, right across the street. He is going to pursue his people to the ends of the earth until he refines it to a point where there is a remnant who will love him. Do you guys catch the language of again and again I sent my servants, the prophets? You should remember this from 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 through 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. Hear this, though. Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. He didn't want to burn Jerusalem to the earth, and he doesn't want to kill the remnant that is fleeing now. He doesn't even want to destroy Egypt again. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Saints, we have a faithful and compassionate God. He does no wrong. He is a good king. He only does these things when men persist. Deuteronomy 29, 19 speaks of this so clearly. When men persist in doing what is wrong and they act as if they will be blessed on their way. Look, what are the implications of this for church discipline? Let's, let's just think about this for a minute. If there were a church on our street that actually did go through church discipline, I mean, that's a giant hypothetical. It's like, what if grandma had wings? <laughs> okay. And after they would not receive discipline there, they just showed up here and were like, oh, it's okay. We're all brothers. How is that any different than what is going on right now in these chapters? Do you think the body of Christ is not guilty of this? Of course we are. Of course we are. And you you are especially guilty of it when you're related to it. Okay? It's my mom! It's my sis, you know? Yeah, but your sis is a devil that has never walked rightly with the Lord, and you're helping her not walk rightly with the Lord. You're comforting her with Egyptian counsel. Wow. Okay? We, we, we got to come to grips with this as a body. Okay? I don't like it any more than you like it. I want to be nice to people. I know that's shocking to you. <laughs> I, I want to get along. I want people to like me and me like them. We're supposed to represent God like that commander of the armies of the Lord. Amen. Not for one or the other for God. How important is it that we, with the mind of Christ, know what he thinks and don't just presume it? Yeah, pretty important. Hmm. As we pick up in verse 7 through 10, you're going to see the Lord continue to highlight what he will do, why, and what is causing it. But I have to be frank. It's 914, and I just feel the Spirit of God speaking about children in this room. Speaking about adult children. Those that have left your household and what we just spoke on a minute ago could not be any more true than those who were once in your care and are currently living like this remnant, whatever is left of their existence, you cannot be Egypt for them. Hey, let's get verse 7. Yeah, we're just going to move right on. <laughs> you heard us now that salt will, will settle in that wound as we move forward. Now, this is- 
going to keep going because this is this gets to be a very heavy subject. I mean, and we still have a lot of really good things to cover. But I'd like you to hear the Apostle Paul's application when he's reflecting on these events because he writes about it to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 10:5, he says, "Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert." Now these things occurred as examples to keep us, somebody say us, us, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. <laughs> Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Let's just pick up in verse 11. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I am determined to bring disaster on you and to destroy all of you. I will take away the remnant of Judah who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there. They will all perish in Egypt. They will, they will fall by the sword or die of famine. From the least to the greatest, they will die by the sword of famine. They will become an object of cursing and horror, of condemnation and reproach. I will punish those who live in Egypt with the sword, famine, and plague, as I punish Jerusalem. None of the remnant of Judah who have gone to live in Egypt will escape or survive to return to the land Yeah, it's pretty clear there's not a great deal of optimism in this passage, isn't there? But it does seem to relate to the 100 from 1,000 in Amos 5. Or you can say the remnant of a remnant that passes through the sieve in Amos 9. Talking about an an ever-winnowing way, a remnant that just keeps getting smaller and smaller. But you know, to all of this... We say, you don't have to live like a refugee. Don't have to live like a refugee. Man, thank God for Tom Petty, right? Yeah, yeah. We don't have to be refugees. We can come out as kings. Let's pick up in verse 15. Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to the gods, Uh along with all the women, that's not good. A large assembly. They're smoking Kush and Kush. <laughs> we could definitely teach on Shalom in the home right here. <laughs> and, in fact, it's a lot more than just telling your wife what to do, husband. But we kind of think that you get the point without us doing all that tonight, don't you? No? Do we need to get into it? We're trying to spare you, Come for God's now. sake. Help us out a little bit. The husband that fails to restrain ungodly behavior in his home, most likely because he's a coward and he's carnal himself, this causes extreme judgment on his home, just like in verse 15. Now, for more on the subject, because we need to move on, you can go to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, and you can read about a little conversation that Eli had with a boy named Samuel. But we need to continue on in verse 16 with those. Amen! We don't have to live like a refugee. No, we don't. We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything you said we would. Mm. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her. 
next part. Do you remember what their justification for feeling good in, in these actions are? They're prospering while they do it. I mean, how could it be wrong? Life is wonderful. Business is terrific. People are kind. While they are moving backwards from God's plan and not forward. Surely that has no application in our society. Surely that's not what Joseph Prince is talking about on TV every night or Colgate Joel or any of the other guys. Surely this has nothing to do with any of that. And some of you are offended that I call their names. What do you think Jeremiah would do? As we move forward, notice the boldness of sin. They no longer deny that it's even happening. In fact, they actually proudly proclaim their dedication to it. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 19. Women at it. We burn incense to the children of heaven. They 
just had one more thing to say. Because <laughs> they're doing so well already. <laughs> you know? It's like that line, I don't know how to fly it, I just know how to buy it. Keep saying things like that, Jesse. Look, I, we're going to be positive for the remaining four Yeah, help us, Judah. I'm getting wound up. There's nothing that I love more than a man like Baj that is able to lay out exactly what his family should be doing. And when his wife speaks... She's speaking in perfect unity with oh, Elder Amen. to it. Now, not in our church. No. But there's nothing more shameful to a leader of a household when his wife speaks over him in a conversation with oh, men of God man. that I have ever seen. Or tells everybody that she disagrees with him. Oh. That's, that's not bad. That's not what Jeremiah is condemning here. Definitely Maybe not. you just pick back up in 19 and we'll, we'll read Yeah, we that. can just smoke kush with the Queen of Heaven. That would be better. <laughs> or Kamala Harris, depending on your translation. Is that heaven or is that the other location, the South Pole? Do you notice Jeremiah? He's no longer just talking to the men since they cannot correct their wives. He's talking to their wives. Did not the Lord remember and think about the incense burned in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem by you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land? When the Lord could no longer endure your wicked actions and the detestable things you did, your land became an object of cursing and a desolate waste without inhabitants. self-confidence, defiance, it may look impressive to the carnal eyes and the carnal masses, but it's a really, really bad plan with God. Listen, when you're in these situations where you're recognizing you're doubling down on a bad decision in this room between brothers, just answer with the one word solution that the Bible prescribes. Repent! And your life might be spared. Hear the tone that Jeremiah picks up as we keep rolling. Go ahead then. Do what you promised. Keep your vow. He's speaking an ancient Indian tongue called Slapaho. <laughs> it's similar to Apache, only a lot different. <laughs> only a lot. If God has to say that. I swear by my great name. Yeah, what's what's gonna follow is is tough. Says the Lord that no one from Judah living anywhere in Egypt will ever again invoke my name or swear. As surely as the sovereign Lord lives, for I am watching over them for harm, not for good. The Jews in Egypt will perish by the sword and famine until they are all destroyed. Those who escape the swords and return to the land of Judah from Egypt will be very few. Then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt 
Church, whose word's going to stand, ours or his? His. Now, as is frequent in the Bible, there is a literary device being used called hyperbole. Many, many times it looks like God's going to kill them all, but then he mentions refugees. Then he talks more about killing them all, every single one of them, and then he says those that escape will be very few. This is when the exceptions to the rule are so minor that it, it would be extraneous to keep mentioning it. So the speed limit in the United States, in at least the free state of Texas, yes. is 80, except for ambulances, except for cops, except for Judah on a call to an appointment. <laughs> We understand that even the word speed limit has limits to it. Yeah. Well, that's what's going on here. But I wanted us in our final 18 minutes to engage with this in a way that you might not have otherwise. It's easy to read this as those people, those bad Jews. So let's ask a couple of questions to help you contextualize this because you're already in a situation just like it and you haven't realized it yet. Are you bracing? You're not in Egypt during Passover time. You're not the poor victim of Egyptian oppression that just needs to be delivered by God. You're the product of generations of people who have forsaken their God and returned to the very idols of Egypt. Let me help you back into that because you don't think it's true. I can tell already. How obedient were your forefathers? Well, that must be because they didn't have a Bible or know there was a God, right? No. Nope. Oh, they, they did have Bibles. They did know that there was a God. And yet they clung to Egyptian-like idols of this world and lived less than all-out lives for the kingdom of God. And you're their sons and daughters. What kind of Christianity did you inherit from them? Mm. Is that because the Gideons didn't leave them a Bible? Or is it just because they loved Egypt and that defined their lives? And still does for most of them. Aren't we a generation trying to return from this kind of reliance on Egypt? See, when we talk about being set free from Egypt, we talk about being set free from Egypt like the Passover. Poor oppressed slaves that God is setting free. But that's not really our situation, is it? No. A few hundred years ago, men that were enlightened by God's word founded this whole country. And our problem is not that we've never been set free. It's that your forefathers and mine did not love the freedom that God gave enough to be obedient to him. And you think it's okay. It shows up in the way that you deal with them. We'd all love to simply identify with the oppression of Egypt. We like to be victims. And all we need to do is be delivered at Passover. In fact, that's where the bulk of preaching and teaching is. But the actual biblical truth in this room is far more stinging. Our forefathers disregarded what they knew of God in favor of relying on Egypt. And we are trying to return from a second stay in Egypt without making the very same mistake. Is that too nuanced for you? Is that too complex? Or are you feeling me here? Your problem's not that you don't know that God is right. 
that you have motives that you don't even want to deal with. You just want the things that you want. And the kingdom of God is something easy to talk about as all I want, as long as it's not actually showing up and you being shackled with God's people or impoverished with God's people. See, we don't have a first Egypt problem in this room. We've got a second Egypt problem. Perhaps Jesus was addressing a situation very much like that. See, he was talking to a believing community in Matthew 7. And this might put it in a new light for you. Matthew 7, verse 13 through 14. says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. He wasn't talking to Norwegians. He was but, talking to a believing community just like you. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You mean a few just like those who escaped Egypt the second time will be very few? See, Jesus was speaking to a believing community like ours. This was spoken to people who had already been saved from the oppression of Egypt and now needed to be saved from reliance to Egypt like idols. The current generation he was talking to never was saved from the oppression of Egypt. And yet, because they had the Egyptian-like idols inside of their hearts, Jesus came telling them about the ever-narrowing way. Why did he say that to them? Because the way was getting more narrow. The more distance that, that transpired from the actual event that they came out of the oppression of Egypt, the more distance between generations and time, the more narrow that the, t that the path had to get because more Egyptian idols started to spring up inside of them. Take stock of this, church. God's judgments are coming upon our nation. They're coming upon your sweet mom and dad, who are not really that sweet. Your brothers and sisters that you love so much but don't love God so much. They're coming on your children that you raised poorly and they live poorly. You find it difficult to stand for God? If you do, it's because you love Egypt. Would you rather avoid the bronze shackles? Would you rather avoid the difficult treatment? Well, that's not because you were never covered under the Passover blood. It's because you would rather walk away from the difficult parts of God's will and return to an Egypt-like lifestyle. You've been saved from the oppression of Egypt, but you haven't been saved from the seduction of Egypt. Do we have some growing up to do in this room? Yes. The truth, church, is that it's not going to get any easier or any wider to walk into the path. It is always going to get more narrow. And if you think that's true in your life, it's going to be even more narrow for your children. What does Matthew 24, verse 10 through 13 say? At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Wow. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. You see, tonight, before I read verse 12, we're not going to waste our time talking about people that aren't in this room. We're talking about you 
Yes. Ones that have experienced Passover, ones that have experienced this kind of faith and this kind of life. So my brother Treaster was drilling down on this earlier. We are all currently on a narrow way, but that way is not going to stop narrowing. You see, it gets more and more narrow as the times get darker and darker because the oppression from Egypt and the world around us gets more and more real, more and more physical, more and more drawing. So we're required to grow. Yeah. Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's not that they've never had a love. Of course, they had a genuine love, but that genuine love did not grow, and so it grew cold. But, 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 he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Yeah! Guys, we have an opportunity, we have an ability to stand firm to the end. Yes. Look, yesterday morning, we got some serious marching orders from the throne room of God, didn't we? Yes. yes. We got some serious marching orders that will enable us to be able to be the army of God that is so closely knit together, that is inspiring each other to have a love and a passion and a longing for God and a longing for his kingdom that will only increase with time. You see, we absolutely need each other to be able to grow in this love. Amen. We have to have each other to our left and to our right for our love to continue to increase without decreasing. Yeah. I wish Gedaliah had a better friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been naive many times. I wish I had a better, better support system at different times in life to keep us on the right road. Because it only takes an Ishmael or two or a Johanan or two. And the body of Christ is devastated. Dev devastated. Look, Egypt and Babylon are both emblematic of the world system. You've been saved from the oppression of your souls by Satan. Do you need to be saved from the seduction of your soul by the things of Egypt? Yeah, that answer is yes. yes. And your stunning lack of response to it shows that this is a revelation to you. And that's okay. That's why we do what we do. This is not going to be a hard, heavy evening. We're not going to pray through the tabernacle for an hour and ten minutes afterwards. We want you to get this in your heart so that it works in your mind for weeks. Okay? Because I promise these areas are everywhere. Your motives seem pure to you. And you don't know why you do the things that you do. You don't know why when mom calls, you feel like you just have to do what she says. But it's because you're an Egypt lover. Oh, and you wow. don't know it. Yeah. Okay? So, uh, yeah, you remember the Egyptian lover? Oh, I had this. His baseline was great, but I'm pretty sure he's in hell now. Wow. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's pick up in verse 29, and we're going to wrap this up. This will be the sign to you that I will punish you in this place, declares the Lord, so that you will know that my threats of harm against you will surely stand. This is what the Lord says. I am going to hand Pharaoh, Ophra, king of Egypt, over to his enemies who seek his life. Just as I handed Zedekiah, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the king of Babylon, the enemy who was seeking his life. I want you to understand that our God will have no rivals. Amen. He won't allow somebody to oppress you and hold you down, but he also won't allow them to aid you in doing what is wrong. 
and he won't allow you to aid others in doing what is wrong. Through tacit or implicit means. He will judge all gods that either oppress or seduce his people, even if that is you. He's going to hold each of us accountable for our own actions. That's a terrifying thing. The righteous can barely stand in the judgment. What will be the outcome of the ungodly? I want to end on a note of desperation and hope. Say desperation. Desperation. And hope. hope. We've read to you Romans 11 many times. I'm going to read the 15th verse, and I want you to do your very best to hear something new in it. You all going to work with me on that? For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For Israel to receive life from the dead, then they have to be brought to a place of death. Have you thought about that? Masada didn't do it. The cry of Masada was never again. That didn't bring them to a place where their power is broken. It brought them to a place where they said, we'll never be broken. The Holocaust. I love the nation of Israel. It pains me to even talk like this. The Holocaust didn't do it. Came out of the Holocaust determined to have their own nation and the strongest IDF so that they will never be in that position again. All we've seen from adversity in the nation of Israel is more self-determination, more self-direction, more self-reliance. It's at the very moment when the power of the holy people is finally shattered, broken, that life comes out of death. Self-determination, self-direction, self-reliance must die, must. On a national stage, we see that setting happening. Western nations abandoning support, and that breaks my heart, but it is what is needed. I'm not saying it's right any more than it was right for Babylon to do, but it's what is needed. Did you think I was only talking about Israel? John 12, 24. See if you can learn something in this. I tell you the truth. If the king of truth, if the author of truth, if truth incarnate says, I tell you the truth, should you stop fidgeting and start listening? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You ready to really dial in? The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You've heard those phrases so long, they've lost their import. They've lost their power. So let me help you. Not one of you in this room will experience the resurrection of the dead without hating your Egypt-loving life. Crucified to you. 
and you crucified it. It's not a moment when you were eight at an altar. It's a lifetime of a narrowing way. At the very moment of your complete and total death to your self-determination, and you are a self-determined group, your self-direction, you even have self-direction in the way that you say that you walk with God. Well, I know that God has told me, and I know that I heard from God, and I know... Yeah, you have a very high opinion of yourself. You know what it really is? You have self-reliant motives, and you don't know it, and you have to die to them. Yeah. I'll be stronger. I'll never be in that position. I, I, I'll get it right so that I never have to be corrected again. You sinful, Egypt-loving person. It's when our power is finally broken yeah. that life comes. The broken and contrite heart that he doesn't despise. It's the bruised weed and smoldering wick that he does not snuff out. Well, when we get to those places, then we can know that the power of resurrection is at work within us. If Israel, his people, must be brought to a place of shatteredness, to experience resurrection life, do you really think that you'll escape it? Have you read the book of Revelation? It's why we're working with you day and night and working with ourselves day and night to develop transparent lives, laying our motives bare for the inspection of our friends because the truth is not one of us is so spiritual so in love with the word and so filled with the spirit that we do not make many errors regularly. And you won't know when you're making them. This is our opportunity. You've been saved from the oppression of Egypt. That is not your problem anymore. Now we have to be saved from the seduction of Egypt's ways that are still in all of you still in me. I said we're not going to pray through the tabernacle tonight. We're not going to grovel at this altar tonight. Because I've learned something about charismatic Christians. If we provide that opportunity for you right now, that's what you'll do. And all but two or three of you will get up and you'll come to this altar and it's good. That is a good response except then you will walk out feeling as if it is done, and the truth is, is it is just now beginning. Yes. We'll see how you do if we have no power for a few months, if we have no water, if you can't get your hot bath when you want it. Okay? I don't know what it will take, but I know that it's at our moment of brokenness that we truly experience his power. It is in our weaknesses uncontrolled situations, helpless situations that his power is made perfect. So when we sing more love, more power, more of you in my life, that's what it takes to get there. And it only comes by refusing to walk back towards Egypt in our thoughts, in our ways, in our actions, in our relationships, in our dealings with each other. I'm exactly like you.
I've deceived myself into thinking I'm further along than I am. But now sober times are coming. The prophecies have said training is over. War is upon us. So this is our opportunity. We are going to know the power of the resurrection, but it's going to come through the shattering of our self-determination, our self-reliance, our self-direction. The Lord is going to control our actions in all of our dealings. If that is the desire of your heart, would you stand to your feet as the pastors close this meeting? nobility of your own intentions, not the false glorification of your own direction, but people who have actually died so that we can manifest his resurrection power in us. Everybody say thank you. Thank you. This is a word that we need and must have tonight. God is raising us up. He's growing us up. It involves the shattering of our own self-reliance self-determination. This is a joy for us to participate in. So our Father's helping us get this right. He's helping us get down to the bottom of our petty issues. I mean, those sinful self-reliances that impede our growth. He's helping us move forward and not be in a free fall state of going backwards. Amen. See, God is maturing every person in this house. Right. And you know what that maturing process looks like? There's more. Yeah. There's more that you can do. There's more that you are called to. There's no neutral position for you to stay stationary in, but as a body, collectively, we are going to grow. And it's done with the attitude of the John scripture that they ended with, John 12. We're going to joyfully lose our life and the ownership of it for our king because it's only through that process that we find resurrection power to give us what we needed the whole time. So do you want resurrection power? I guess. As we pray, we're going to joyfully pray and welcome the continuation of this shattering process and allow our God to strengthen and mature us. Mighty King of heaven and earth, 
Oh, we thank you for your word that pierces our hearts, that circumcises our ears, or that trains us of how to be just like you, but it starts with the death of us. Lord, let these things die inside of us today, tomorrow, this week, and an ongoing basis. Let our expectations be shattered at your feet that we may find your resurrection power available at work within us and receive the gifts that you have ordained all along. In Jesus' name, we all say, Amen. Amen.